Alison Rowlands is a professor of European history at the University of Essex with specific interests in the early modern period, gender history and witchcraft, which is what we're going to be discussing today. Professor Rowlands, welcome to Smart Cookies. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. You did a wonderful series of short lectures for historical association on the topic of early modern German witchcraft. And in the beginning of those, you said that witchcraft emerged from European popular culture in kind of like late medieval period. It emerged from people believing in magic, good and bad. But if we can stop here for a brief moment, what was magic exactly? Was it more of like a a supernatural, a supernatural property or ability ascribed to just anything that couldn't be explained otherwise, kind of like, uh, you know, filling the gaps sort of thing, or was it a bit more defined than that? Yeah, I think I think it's both of those. I think it's absolutely central to how people at that time imagined their world. Um, it was also a profoundly religious society, um, and so I think magic needs to be seen as part of that overall system. So so people believe in 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 God, in saints, but they also believe in uh in the devil, in spirits, uh, in the possibility really of I guess we could call it supernatural intervention in the world. So it's a very, very, very different mindset to the mindset that we have today. Most of us nowadays tend not to think that we're going to meet the devil when we go shopping or, you know, that a familiar spirit is going to encounter us in our kitchen. And interestingly, we, we probably tend to laugh about those ideas now, but people then took them very seriously. And there was a very broad kind of division between sort of good or at least ambivalent magical power. Um, but also there was the idea that you could actually do bad things with magic. So, so magic was really a power as well. Humans felt they could do magic, perform magical rituals to to harm people, but also to find buried treasure, to cure people. So it wasn't just a, a negative power. It could, uh, it was believed to be possible to put it to good uses, to tell fortunes, to prophesy, and so on. Um, the other thing I'd add, Zaza, is that it's actually it's not just popular culture. Um, it's taken right. super seriously by the elites um, as well. Um, so you actually have quite a few very well-educated men who, who who would practice magic, necromancy, for example, to try and raise and control spirits to do certain things for them. So um, I think I think it's such a powerful belief because it's so widespread and it you know it's so important to the way people explain things um, and, and manage their lives. You mentioned that people believed in supernatural intervention in their lives. Was that a regular occurrence? Did it happen like every day or was it reserved for exceptional circumstances? Um, that's, that's a really good question. I mean, I think there are exceptional circumstances in which in which it would happen. Um, and certainly, um, you know, in the context, say, of um, perhaps encountering a, a demon, that would be very, you know, very exceptional, very unusual. But But most people... On a, on a fairly kind of day-to-day -day basis would have used, for example, protective magic. They might have worn, you know, an amulet around their neck or they might have, um, you know, blessed their cattle before taking them out in the morning to the fields or 
very often doorways are used as sort of protective mechanisms for people going in and out of houses or livestock going in and out of barns and you might put a, a symbol for example over your over your threshold or over your door as a protective um as a protective mechanism so um there's a general sense in which magic was much much more part of just the, the everyday you know everyday life um it was very it was very practical you know if you're if you're a 15th century peasant you know lots of stuff can go wrong you can get ill your cows can die the weather can be really bad um so you just you're very pragmatic i think you would use whatever you can to to try and kind of get through the day get through the year ensure you've got got a good harvest and so on it, may, it makes a lot of sense really um you know and if you think doing a doing a bit of of good magic or protective magic is going to help then you know it makes us, i'm sure we would have done it if we'd have lived then i'm sure we right. would have um done done much much the same yeah you said whatever gets you through the day and that's why i still read the zodiac okay there you go because <laughs> it helps me get through yeah the, day. the continuity of um of belief so um that's that's a whole other story but on the other hand if you were a 15th century peasant and every time you lost your pitchforks or whatever you went oh the devil took him or i've been bewitched or whatever people would probably say i'll oh, get off it mate it's just you lost mm -hmm. you lost your pitchforks again yeah. you know yeah. you're clumsy you're forgetful you couldn't just claim that for everything probably there were some standards of ascribing what was witchcraft or what yeah, and what wasn't absolutely i mean i think in the in the 15th century the 15th century is really really interesting because what happens in the 15th century is that there was a big change in um, belief, but mainly on the part of the educated elites. So you've had, for a long time, broadly speaking, kind of general belief in good magic and bad magic, and in the possibility of people working magic. But but what happens in the course of the 15th century is a really, really new idea emerges, um, which is that there's a new type of witch Uh, and this is really mm -hmm. the radical innovate. This is very innovative. This is very new. This hasn't been around before. Um, and so what happens at the level of, of particularly um, religious elites um, is that they, they start to fear a new threat to Christianity, um, a new heresy. Uh, and they begin to think not, not just that a witch could work harm by magic, but also that witches are in league with the devil, that witches are a new form of, of heresy. Um, and, and that's really what changes, um, not some, well, it changes the way people believe about witchcraft, but I think it changes the level of fear of witches. So, so the witch is no longer imagined as a, someone in a village who could work magic, but it gets elevated in, in some of this elite thinking to someone who can work magic, but is also in league with the devil plotting with other witches and the devil and and it, it it kind of elevates the threat of of witchcraft onto a whole new level and that really i think is what explains to some extent the the witch trials of the 16th and 17th centuries it's this new very new idea that witchcraft is a new heretical threat and that's why the church um elites secular elites you know What, why why do they take it so seriously? Well, they take it so seriously at this time in history, in Western Europe particularly, because 
of this very new idea in in witchcraft as a new threat, a new heretical threat to the church. Uh, we're we're going to come back mm-hmm. to the early modern period, but just to go back just a little bit, just to illustrate how stark this changes. And please correct me if I say anything um, stupid here. But from my limited understanding, a lot of early Christian doctrine regarded witchcraft as superstition. It actually went so far that certain Christian rulers, such as Charlemagne, the Holy Roman Emperor, I just read this, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's right, uh, that he outlawed burning witches at the stake because it was considered pagan. In fact, if you did that, you yourself would end up being killed. So could you talk about more, uh, could you talk more about why did this yeah. religious dogma change so dramatically? Mm. No, I, th- I think you're you're right. That there is in the in the Middle Ages... It was still possible to be executed for witchcraft if if it was believed that you'd, you know, try try to kill somebody through image magic, for example, or through sort of poisoning someone. Then, then obviously you, you could still be be executed for harmful magic. But there was much there was much more of an emphasis on belief in witchcraft as as a superstition. There's a very famous early 10th century church decree. It's called the Canon Episcopi, and it basically talks about um, it talks about people believing in in magic, believing still believing in the goddess Diana and her and people flying about with the goddess Diana through the air. And and, and um, but what it says is that people who believe this are are superstitious. Actually, it's a bit worse than that. They they are actually technically idolatrous. You know, they're breaking they're breaking the first commandment because they're believing in false gods. By believing this, but but the interesting thing is, well, I think there are two really interesting things. The first one is, it, there's much more of an emphasis on this as a kind of a spiritual problem. It's kind of a wrong belief um, rather than anything. And the other the other important thing is that the the remedy for it is to try and teach people better Christian doctrine. It's not that they're all going to be carted off to be executed. So. Um, I mean, ultimately, you could be excommunicated if you if you stop to these idolatrous beliefs. But but it frames ideas about witchcraft, magical flying, these sorts of things as being a spiritual problem, which could be and should be solved, not through prosecution, not through execution, but through better education. So actually, I think I think you're absolutely right, Zaza. The, the Middle Ages, often people say, "Oh, the medieval witch burnings," but actually, right, right. No, yeah, yeah. you know, they the, the Middle Ages were relatively, and I use that term very advisedly with the annoying with the annoying fingers, but uh, relatively um, sort of restrained in relation to belief about witchcraft. What changes? I think various things change in the later Middle Ages. Um, you have the massive plague epidemic of the 14th century, which I think just makes people much, much more anxious, concerned about mortality, concerned about who's causing and spreading diseases. There are actually some sort of, you know, various groups in society get some, some there are some sort of accusations against Jews, some against lepers. This idea that there's a secret underworld plotting against Christian society, that that's accentuated by by the plague epidemic. You also get massive real heretical movements in the late Middle Ages, the Cathars, the Waldensians. So again, the, the Christian church is really under threat 
from heresy, particularly in the in the late Middle Ages. Um, and you also get a slight change in terms of how people think about demons and the devil, particularly as a result of, um, for example, writers like Thomas Aquinas, that there, there's much more of a sense in, in some of this theological thinking from sort of the 12th, 13th century onwards um, that this demonic threat is a physical, real one rather than it being a kind of a, a mental, spiritual one. There's the idea that it's actually much more of a of a real threat. And then just to go back to the 15th century, what happens in the 15th century is that inquisitors are sent by the Pope to investigate heretics, um, to try and bring them back to the church. Um, and we have several Dominican inquisitors, particularly going into um, into the Alpine regions, I- into sort of southern Germany. Um, and they're looking for heretics. They're looking for Waldensians, particularly real heretics, as the church would have it. Excuse me, I have to stop you yeah. here. I don't know what Waldensians are. Yeah. They're, they are a, a heretic. Is that like Cathars? Yes, very similar to Cathars. Yeah. Um, so th- these are two very significant heretical movements. So they are genuine um, movements where, you know, all, fairly ordinary people in some cases are critical of the church. Um, want things changing, and they they are perceived as a real, uh, you know, a real problem for um, for the Catholic Church, and so they 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 expend a lot of effort and energy in prosecuting them and in in effectively suppressing them. But I think it raises their anxiety, the, the church's anxiety about the threat of heresy. Um, so so when when inquisitors go out in the fifteenth century as part of this her- her- heretic fighting program, they encounter people in, in, in villages, you know, on mountainsides who have lots of what they regard as really strange beliefs about magic, magical um, powers, magical flying, the possibility of harming people through magic. And what they do, and it's quite a long, complicated process in the 15th century, but but what they do in in the context of these sort of cultural encounters, if you like, between Dominican inquisitors and ordinary people, um, the Dominicans begin to think that these magical beliefs are part of this, this are a new sort of heresy. Um, and you can actually see the idea emerging in, in some of the 15th century writings. The, these Dominicans, these churchmen, write about Waldensians, this heretical group. And then then they begin to write about Waldensian witches. You, you can kind of almost see this... The logical progression exactly, of their ar- yeah. arguments, quote-unquote, yeah. But the way that we can tell it's different is because they, they emphasise the power to do magical harm. And they also say that this new sect has the power of magical flight, so it kind of reframes that earlier idea of of night flying as a superstition to a real kind of marker of of this sort of new new heresy um and that's really what the fifteenth century is is really really important really interesting because without without that change without that new idea of witchcraft as a heresy a new heresy another heresy that the church is feeling threatened by i don't think you know we wouldn't have had the scale of persecution that we get in the early modern period you need that shift of emphasis so so witches are now not just 
people who can do harm, which is kind of scary enough, but they're also in league with the devil. It's kind of a new conspiracy theory, if you like, this this unseen kind of threat. Cabal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I interviewed, one of the first interviews I did on this podcast was with Dr. Delphi Nieto Isabel. I think she's a, I mean, I think, I know she's a scholar of female mysticism in medieval Europe. Mm -hmm. And during the conversation, we also touched on witch trials a little bit. And she said something I was totally not expecting. She said that if a woman was accused of witchcraft, that was uh, the medieval period, of course, uh, by her community, the best chance she had was running straight to the nearest inquisitor. Uh, because at least these men were educated enough to know that no woman can walk yeah. through walls or fly around because these powers were reserved for God alone. So in most cases, she would end up getting acquitted. But that was earlier, yeah. right? You're talking about 15th century inquisitors mm-hmm. uh, on the hunt for her- heresy. Yeah. But it's still, again, it's quite dramatic how things change even within the Inquisition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although I, sh- I should say um, that actually, although a lot of this sort of um, a lot of the a lot of the change in terms of this idea can be linked to Dominican inquisitors in the fifteenth century, the vast vast majority of the trials that happen sort of from the late fifteenth to the eighteenth century, they're virtually all done by secular courts, not not by the Inquisition, not not by church courts um so so what what happens is this idea of of witchcraft as a as a threat and as a heresy it kind of gets taken up by the godly rulers of of early modern states and that that's another so in the same way that the idea that witch trials were kind of a medieval thing that that's a myth and another kind of myth is that witch trials were the work of the Inquisition. I think the Inqui- the Inquisitors, particular Inquisitors in the 15th century, are really important in terms of developing this new idea. Um, but but they really they call on secular rulers to take up the fight, as it were. And because you know most early modern states are really kind of theocracies. You know, they're 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 godly states, and religion is is absolutely central to them. Um, it's the secular elites, you know, that they they pass laws, they pass um, statutes against witchcraft. So, so it's very much a, a secular legal um, persecution. So, so even though it has obviously very very significant links to to religion, it, it's actually driven forward um, by by secular. Interesting. Courts. I think most of us have this image of Inquisition from popular culture. Like uh, I remember the movie In the Name of the Rose. Mm-hmm. It's based on a novel by Umberto Eco. Yeah. And the Inquisition just rolls in with those scary kind of half-bald haircuts. And yeah. then they just start burning everybody. And then that's it. Yeah, <laughs> Everybody gets burned at the stake. And they... Um, yeah, they press their scary caravan onwards. You don't hear, or uh, secular courts are just not depicted that often in popular mm. culture. I think probably because they're less scary in the popular imagination. Probably, yeah. No, I think it's it's a really interesting point, Zaza. It shows how much our perceptions are shaped by by film and books and, and kind of TV and so on. Um, yeah, I mean, I think probably, you know, some of the 15th century inquisitors, somebody like Heinrich Kramer, the author of The Malleus, I can imagine he would have been pretty scary um and and certainly i'm sure some of them um were like that but but i mean the what inquisitors want to do is is 
not they don't really want to execute people at the end of the day they really want people to return to the fold if you like so um and actually the places uh, if you look at a map of early modern witch persecution italy uh and and spain so so places that are kind of really dominated still by by inquisitions that they have and again i'm using my relatively term they have relatively low numbers of witch trials and executions in fact the spanish inquisition from the early 17th century onwards is is relatively skeptical about witch prosecution so again oh really yeah i thought uh, that was the scariest one the no, spanish one with no. torquemada and Mm-mm. you know driving out all the jews and Poss- slaves everywhere well, engulfing yeah I mean, maybe they they were less concerned about witches because they were too taken up with persecuting other groups. But certainly, in, ter- <laughs> yeah, in terms I of see. actual witch trials, that they're, they're really on, again on the comparative scale, Spain, Portugal, Italy have have relatively few um, witch trials and certainly relatively few executions. So once they crystallized, as you outlined right now, these beliefs about witches and witchcraft and what witches can do what were these beliefs why are witches flying around and cavorting with the devil Mm -hmm. i mean well some of the ideas are just common to to what the christian church has always thought about heretics so there's a way in which christianity tends to assume um you know what? What's the worst thing that a Christian could do? Well, worship the devil, obviously. Um, uh, harm Christians. So the, the, there, there is a kind of set of central beliefs that that get projected onto um, several heretical groups. You know, you could take it all the way back to things like the Knights Templar. Um, you know, there, there, so there's a there's a sort of a cultural expectation, if you like. You know, what are the worst things? a Christian could do if, if they turn their back on God. And it's very much this kind of inversionary thinking. So if you don't, you know, it's kind of the world turned upside down, if you like. So if you don't, if you don't worship God, you must worship the devil, um, you know, and you do all sorts of really horrendous things, like have all sorts of immoral sex, perhaps eat babies, you know. So, so none of this is actually happening. I hasten to add, this is absolutely all fantasy, but it's a very, very powerful um, fantasy. What's different about the the witchcraft the things that really make it obviously different are first of all this idea of magical flight that's really really new so these popular these long standing popular beliefs in the possibility of magical flying which most people nowadays probably immediately think of harry potter and quidditch yeah. but anyway right. at the time it it was a really kind of bizarre idea and 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 the inquisitors thought this was what marked this this new heretical group out as new so so the flying is new the emphasis on on you know the really kind of concerted acts of harmful magic is new and, and the other thing that's quite new by the end of the 15th century is the idea that witches are more likely to be women because up until then heretics could be either men or women or in fact were more likely to be men actually more m- more of the um heretical um persecution sort of involved um sort of either an e- reasonably even number of men and women or, or they were more directed against men so so the, the things which make this new uh, imagined sect of which is different is is the magical flying the magical use of 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 harmful magic but also 
the idea, the gendering of it, that it's more often um, in this belief system likely to be women who, who, who are witches. And the, the way you know this is because if you start prosecuting people and you ask them all sorts of leading questions and you pressure them and you probably torture them, your beliefs kind of get reaffirmed. So if you say to someone, you know, have you flown to a witch's gathering and, and, and you make them say yes, that makes you think the witch's gathering was real. So a lot of the ideas kind of get expanded upon and confirmed for people by the actual trials. Um, so they're kind of a set of ideas, if you like, on paper. But then if you if you introduce legal prosecution and you kind of get people to say stuff that you want them to, um, then that's a way of this belief system getting kind of strengthened and and spread. Um, I think the other important things to mention are, number one, technological change, because we get print emerging in the late 15th century. So I think, again, the speed and, and, and spread of the, these ideas is helped by print technology. Um, we also have the Reformation happening in the early 16th century. So you get a lot of religious division, concern about godliness, desire. You know, a lot of states want to show how godly they are by persecuting people who aren't godly. And obviously, witches could, could fit into that category. It's also a period that's known as the Little Ice Age. So there was a, we know, we know from weather historians that particularly the 16th and 17th centuries are, are quite badly affected by very poor weather. So it's much kind of wetter and colder. And so harvests aren't so good. So there's kind of a general context of religious tension, um, bad weather, concern over resources, concern over food. Um, so, so those sort of preconditions to make people more, more worried about their, their lives, their families, that, that, can, that can sort of feed into um, the, the making of witchcraft accusations as well. You must have read a lot of original court transcripts and documents from that era. Mm -hmm. Could you take us through a typical witchcraft court case from the moment of um, a, a, presumably a woman was accused yeah, of being a witch? I, to I the could. Moment I mean, I was... think. Yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say one of the one of the problems is that that um, yeah. the legal treatment of witchcraft is is quite varied. Um, I see. So. So we have the belief and we have laws against witchcraft. But um, if you looked at a map of early modern Europe, you'd see some areas which have really, really, really severe prosecution rates and other parts of Europe where barely anybody is accused at all. So I think a really important point to make is that although there are laws against witchcraft and there are beliefs in, in witchcraft, the degree to which that translates into trials is very, very, very varied. It varies from region to region um, and it changes a lot across time as well. Um, so so some, some parts of Europe have virtually no witch trials. Other parts of Europe have terrible witch trials. They might come in waves. They might come in patches. So, so I think there's a very, very variegated pattern um in an area where p 
people believe in in witchcraft as a heresy and they're very worried about witchcraft very often there would be a very short very brutal trial uh in other words somebody would be questioned very often tortured and made to confess they would be forced effectively to confess by by the torture but the other thing that they would often be forced to do they would be asked who else did you see at the witches gathering who else did you see so at the denouncing witches? others yeah so or they were called witches dances very often in in german um so the problem with that mechanism so if you have severe torture really um kind of concerted effort to get rid of witches and a belief in the witches sabbath or the witches gathering that's where you've got that mechanism for rapid brutal and and relatively large scale prosecution because yeah if you if you denounce people i mean we have there's some records for example one 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 person prosecuted in late 16th century germany i think i think they denounced 150 other people so so you kind of have this this uh, mechanism for for spreading um denunciations so that's quite a different mechanism from one neighbor accusing another say in a village here in essex um, which is more typical of say the english witch trials you'd have a neighbor perhaps who, whose child has died or fallen ill who suspects uh someone in their community of having caused that that illness um but there are also parts of germany i mean i i work bizarrely on a part of germany that has relatively few witch trials so one of the things i've been interested in doing in my own research has been to say well what stops these trials happening what stops them escalating because i think there's a tendency perhaps for us to think everybody in the early modern period was all af always afraid of witches was always wanting to prosecute them was always willing to execute them. And actually, there are some parts of Europe where there's a lot less in the way of trials and, and prosecutions. Um, so a lot depended where you were accused, a lot depended when you were accused. If, you're, if you were accused in the context, say, of Bamberg in Germany in the late 1620s, you'd be caught up in one of these terrible, large-scale, brutal, rapid persecutions and you'd, you'd probably have no chance whatsoever of surviving you you would confess and be executed wow. or you would probably die because the torture was so terrible and, and something in the region of 600 people are executed in Bamberg in in four years from say 1626 Jesus. to 1630 um, if you were accused just up the road from Bamberg in in the town that I work on there are three executions in the whole of the early modern period so you'd have a much much better chance of being found not guilty, um, perhaps being just just banished rather than executed, or, or not being accused in in the first place. So, um, you know, I think there's a there's a very very variegated um, pattern. It depends what the local courts want to do with accusations. So, so there's a lot of um, room for um, different legal authorities to, to sort of almost decide, are we going to run with this? I mean, again, we don't have the documents. They don't sadly leave us these nice texts where they say, you know, we did this because. But there seems to me a sense in which some some authorities really run with these trials, 
perhaps because they're being pressured to do so, perhaps because they want to do so. But but other authorities are, are more kind of a little bit more careful about let, letting that genie out of the bottle because it's quite hard once you've started, I think, to to sort of stop. Um, Sounds remarkably like some sort of Stalinist show trial where people get presented with what they have to say in advance mm-hmm. and then it gets confirmed, obviously, yeah. because otherwise their family is going to get the worst of it. And of course, they're also beaten and tortured sometimes. Yeah. Um, but why did people, I mean, why did prosecutors who were probably educated believe in torture? Obviously, they knew that people are going to say what they want them to say. Well, in, in most of Europe at this time, um, torture is is part of the legal system. So, so for example, in, in you know most of Central Europe, Germany, what was the Holy Roman Empire at the time? The, the law code which governs criminal prosecution allows for the use of torture, not not just in witchcraft cases, but in but in all kind of serious cases. Now, it wasn't the case that everybody was tortured repeatedly um even these very rudimentary law codes try to put some sorts of rules and regulations on the use of torture so for example they'd say you know you have to be accused by an honorable person there has to be a certain amount of evidence against you and also the idea was that if you were tortured say mildly um if there could ever be such a thing, um, I mean, the first the first actual degree of torture was being shown the instruments of torture, which I don't know about you, Zaza, but that I would just confess. You know, I would just see 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 what was going on, and I would just just sort of confess. So, so that was the first. I would confess already when they would tell me that they was they're going to show me the instruments. Yeah, of exactly. <laughs> um, but the idea was that if you if you maintained your innocence, your your denial of guilt under torture then unless there was any new evidence you couldn't be you couldn't be tortured again so it sounds very very barbaric and very crude by our standards but actually it was an attempt to regulate the use of um the these methods so so the really large scale rapid brutal trials happen in parts of europe and particularly parts of um central europe germany where Local authorities basically ignore these sort of overarching law codes. They, they they treat witchcraft as what they call an exceptional crime. In other words, they they think it's so bad, so ungodly, so threatening that they basically throw the rule book out the window. I mean, it wasn't a great rule book to start with, but they, they effectively say anything goes in relation to um to witch trials because they felt it was so such a heinous crime but but your point's a really good one i mean people at the time know that people make false confessions some of the 17th century critics i mean it was quite risky to be a critic of witch persecution but early modern people do recognize that the law is effectively forcing people to confess um so i think it it's not by any means an objective legal system because it's dealing it's dealing basically with a non-existent crime and you know if you're dealing with a non-existent crime such as meeting the devil going to a sabbath harming harming a child destroying a harvest 
you either believe in it and run with that belief or you say, you know, we can't prove it. Our, our, you know, we really can't prove it at, at law. Um, so in, in the area that I work on, the authorities, they believe in witches, the possibility of witches. They believe in the devil. Uh, but they, what they tend to say is, we don't want to execute an innocent person by accident. We don't want that on our conscience. So we will leave the judgment up to God. There's this really profound belief in, in God judging everybody when, you know, when they're at the day of judgment. So some authorities think it's better to leave the judging to God who can see and know everything because witchcraft is such a secret, hidden crime. Their own legal systems can't reliably work out who's innocent and who's guilty in other parts of europe the authorities think they've got if you like a bit more arrogance they they think they can they can find the witches and and the irony there is what they say is the confessions prove this hidden demonic world so you get in this horrendous loop of using false confessions to prove what you were trying to prove in the first. So, so I think once you start unpicking it with a modern kind of rational, logical approach, it's just, it just, it just really doesn't make it. It was about what people wanted to believe, were willing to believe, and then what they were willing to do on the basis of that, of that belief system. So you could believe in witchcraft, but not want to prosecute people or, or not want to really prosecute them very often. But in other in other parts of Europe, people ran with those um, beliefs, you know, into very large scale um, persecutions. And, um, you know, if people tried to resist torture, they would say, well, the devil's helping them. You know, they're only resisting the torture because the devil's on their side. Uh, and, and, and that was proof. So, so in a way, it was a catch 22 in those situations. You either admitted you were guilty, in which case you're a witch or you resisted torture in which case the devil was helping you and you were a witch. So, so, so again, in that situation... Fantastic choice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, you would just probably be well advised to... Could you ever get acquitted then if you were caught up in a particularly vicious uh, period, in a particularly vicious time, like in Bamberg, as you mentioned, you got caught up in this mass hysteria or whatever it was and you were accused of being a witch. Was there any chance of you getting uh, off the hook? It's very, almost impossible, Um, almost impossible. So they were basically like show trials. Yeah, yeah, because, um, as I say, you know, you, any any resistance, any attempt to not confess didn't stop, you know, you would still be tortured again. That's why breaking the rule, you know, breaking, sort of using torture excessively and repeatedly. Um, So there's a very famous, (coughs) excuse me, a very famous case from Bamberg, a man uh, called Johannes Junius, who's a man of um, sort of status, political influence, wealth. Um, he, he's accused of witchcraft and, and taken to this specially built witch prison in Bamberg. Um, and, and we have a letter that he wrote um, to his daughter that was never actually delivered outside the jail. So it survived amongst his trial documents. And, and it's a really interesting um, letter because he, he he basically says it's almost like he's realized for the first time anybody who goes into that witch prison will just be forced to confess because they can't withstand the torture it's a very very moving harrowing letter because 
he he's trying to work through how because he's going to perjure himself you know if you're a very good christian a, a very religious person if you deliver a false confession that's kind of a sin in and of itself so he's he's trying to work through in this letter he's saying you know i'm going to have to confess um i'm going to have to perjure myself but i'm only doing it because they're they're making me now we don't get these glimpses of that process very often because obviously most most of the accused can't can't write can't read um and and you know there there are some of these letters but they're they're quite few and far between um but yeah you you had almost no chance of being acquitted in that context what what tends to end these sorts of trials is some sort of external intervention so for example in Bamberg and Würzburg you get the families of of people who've been executed you get them appealing to a sort of a higher level appeal court and asking for sort of external intervention um, on that score. Um, very occasionally, you get an absolutely stunningly resistant and resilient individual who mm. just so, holds out for so long against the pressure, against the torture that it begins what once once the prosecuting elites start to doubt what they're doing that's usually what slows things down brings things to an end and you you occasionally get people who resist the torture for so long um that the prosecuting elites just begin to think well are are we doing the right thing are we doing this properly and in a way i mean it's very very difficult for us i think to and I don't think we should empathise with persecutors anyway. But I think the problem they have is once they've started one of these horrendous, brutal, cruel trial episodes, it's kind of what do you do if you realise you've got it horribly wrong? I mean, you know, you say, you know, so what do you do? How, how do you, how do you, you know, how how do you go back on that if you've executed people? I mean, it's very interesting. Um, the in Salem, I don't know if you've heard of the 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 Salem witch trial, the American thing, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, in the late um in the late seventeenth century. What's really unusual about the Salem witch trials is that the some of the men who were involved in the prosecutions and the convictions they actually apologise afterwards. Um, so, for example, the twelve men of the court jury who, who sat for, uh, on, in, in, the, in the English and, and, and new English legal system, um, it was trial by jury. So you get the 12 jury men of Salem apologising for what they did. Um, but, but the explanation they give is really interesting. So they say they're really sorry about what happened and the fact that people got executed. Um, but they everybody died yeah, but, uh, but they were I'm being, really sorry about that yeah they were being deluded they they were being deluded by the devil so it's not that they suddenly say the law was wrong or gosh you know we've all become really rational or enlightened or anything it's not not to do with that it's to do with the fact that they they felt that the devil was manipulating all of the people to 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 effectively cause discord cause communities to get divided and and to execute innocent people because you know, at the end of the day, that that's what the courts were doing. You know, these people we know now can't really work magic. They can't fly about on broomsticks. They can't have sex with demons. We know that now. So that they're effectively being executed for non, non-crimes in our eyes. But it's interesting that by the late 17th century, you know, there is that 
kind of realization that the law could actually have got things wrong but but again it's part of that the belief system is still so strong the idea the devil was deluding people um into executing the innocent um, wow the devil provided really handy excuses like yeah. uh, the dog ate my homework of the medieval era or the early modern period you can always say oh the devil made me do it yeah <laughs> what? yeah but it's interesting they felt they felt the need i mean i think that shows what the what effect a witch trial could have on a community i mean it you know it would have divided families it would have you know that it would have caused poverty you know people who are left behind if they've lost family land it, even if i mean the vast majority of suspects in salem are released um with, without being executed but they they'd have been in jail for for months even you know even being in an early modern prison for for any period of time you know you could easily die of disease your 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 farm and your house you know it would all go to rack and ruin in your absence so even even not being convicted would have had a really profound impact on your on your life on your livelihood and i think that's you know we tend to look at numbers of executions and obviously rightly so but there's probably a lot of the the wider impacts e- even in trials which don't end in conviction or execution it you know it would have had an absolutely horrendous impact on on families on people's reputations um on on their livelihoods and so on um speaking of the numbers of executions do we have any idea of the total in the early modern uh, early modern period of how many people were executed because yeah i mean that that's a really good question because because lots of very inflated figures have sort of entered some of the popular um coverage of this topic so you know you sometimes read of millions of women being executed and i mean the 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 academic historical figure is around sort of 50,000 50 to 60,000 um executions so somewhere in the region of say 100 to 120,000 trials um about 50 to 60,000 executions so so half of the people did get acquitted yes nevertheless yeah. Yeah. Right. In, in, and what was the population of the entire oh, that's region, entire Western Europe um, at the time, approximately? I of course, don't it was changing. No, off the top of my head, to my shame. Um, but that's a really good question. I mean, there's been some really good work done by a historian called Wolfgang Beringer. He's he's uh, got a really good book called Witches and Witch Hunts: A Global History, which is really great because it it, it situates this early modern European witch hunting in, in a broader kind of global context but but the reason i i really like that book and i i use it a lot when i'm teaching is he looks at executions for witchcraft in early modern europe and he looks at the population totals of the individual countries so he's doing exactly what you're suggesting zaza which is that um you've got to relate the total number of executions insofar as you can because obviously the data isn't very precise to, to the population uh, of of a particular region, right? Because um, I have no idea what, yeah. for example, early modern era France, how many people lived yeah. there? Was it five hundred thousand? Was it ten million? Um, was it, I have no idea. I was going to say, if, if, I had, if, I had my, um, if I had my bearing a table in front of me, I, I could. Um, yeah, no worries. Yeah. I mean, these are very. But but what yeah, what he does things. with that is he he works out. So he's got the total number of executions for any particular region, but then he's got the per capita chance of being executed exactly. if that makes sense so yeah. Um, yeah 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 and i think if if memory serves the 
early modern Germany has by far the highest number of total executions. It's 25,000. But I think if, if memory serves, the the highest risk place to be to get executed as a witch was the was Liechtenstein, just because it's, you know, the 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 relative um because it's a relatively small enclave then um you know the 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 numbers relative to the overall the numbers of executions relative to the overall population um was quite significant so um so for example in the british context um england has a relatively low uh, rate of prosecutions there are something like 500 executions overall in england which is fairly densely populated the witch hunt in scotland is more severe um because you've got something like 1,500 at least executions in a much, much less densely populated area. Um, so, so yeah, that's, 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 a, that's a slightly more nuanced way of, of, of thinking about it. So, um, I mean, all of those, ex- you know, one execution is, is a very problematic thing. Um, so, I don't think, I mean, I think there's been some sort of feminist um, kind of emphasis on on these overinflated nine million and they were all women. And that's kind of a bit of a politicised narrative, which I don't think is particularly helpful because I think 50,000 executions is, you know, is bad enough. Um, So um, I don't think, I don't think we really need to sort of, sort of talk about those really inflated I, I get your point. How were people executed? Was it always, were they always burned at the stake? Is that, I think that's also from the movie In the Name of the mm-hmm. Rose, where they tie you to the stake and unless you recant and kiss the cross that's offered, you're going to get burned alive. Yeah. I mean, it's horrific. Yeah. Um, most people are burnt at the stake. Most people are killed first. Um, they are strangled. Usually, um, it wasn't always the case. Some people sadly were burnt alive. That that was the sort of the punishment for heresy. So, um, and some other crimes as well. So, for example, um, you know, you, you would also have sadly at the same time, particularly in the 16th century, there were also executions for heresy where people were were burnt at the stake. But but that was another pressure on people. But they would be told that if they confessed and kind of made their peace with God they would be shown the mercy and I'm doing the thing again with my fingers, the mercy of being strangled first. So, so again, if, if, if you think about the psychological pressure, you know, facing you with that sort of choice, that that's another reason why, uh, why people confess, um, in England and in the English colonies, um, witchcraft was defined slightly differently. It was defined, um, not, not as a religious, not so much as a heresy, but as a felony. And so in England and New England, um, you could, be, if you were convicted of, of harmful witchcraft, you would be hanged. So the mode of execution is slightly different in, in, in England and, and New England. Um, yeah, so, so mo- most, I would say, I mean, again, we don't have exact data, but kind of mo- most people would probably have been been strangled before execution as, as a mercy as a supposed uh, supposed mercy um what sort of people were usually if we can if we can even generalize in such a manner uh what sort of people were usually accused of being witches you said that the majority of them 
were women at least in the mm -hmm. early modern period yeah um, i'm assuming but you mentioned also that rich man from bamberg um but i'm still assuming most of them probably weren't rich people were peasants with a weaker social network or social support women older women mm -hmm. or am i or am i totally wrong here yeah no absolutely i mean i think that the gendering of it is is very important so, so overall somewhere like 75 to 80 percent of all the accused and all those executed were women so it's a very profoundly gendered phenomenon um, against women uh, but that also just reminds us that it was possible also to be accused and executed if you were a man um, again there's a lot of regional variation on the gendering um so for example in bamberg the reason somebody like you know a wealthier man could could get dragged into the trials is because they are so extremely severe i mean once you start torturing people and asking them to denounce people um people can begin to imagine anybody being a witch anybody being at this witch's gathering so so Part of the um, dragging in of male suspects is due to that very um, large, in, in those cases, a very large scale escalation of um, accusation through denunciation that, that makes it possible to drag men in. And you, you can see that in some of the imagery of the time. You, you see images, so, so artists and demonologists and printers, they're kind of imagining what, what did the witches' gathering look like? And you can see them you know, there are men at the witches' gathering as well as women. Um, so so once you, you get into that sort of imaginative world, um, which they believed in, you know, you can, you can incorporate male figures into that Sabbath. But no, the vast majority are women. The vast majority are sort of peasant women, but then most people in early modern Europe are peasants anyway. Um, so um, they're not beggars for the most part. They're not vagrants. Um, they're usually adult women who are married or have been married. So it's not necessarily that they're that they're, they're always targeting sort of single women or, or widows. It's it's almost always or, or very often women who who are married or at least have been married. Women very often of middling years. Some sometimes much older women get accused, and it's often the case that they've had a reputation for some time beforehand. So. They might be accused in their in their sixties or seventies, but they might have had a reputation. There might have been a suspicion for much longer that that they were that they were witches. Um, and again, it's very very difficult to generalise, but but it seems to be the case that um, women who were particularly um, sort of quarrelsome, verbally aggressive. Um, argumentative, perhaps feisty, if you like, uh, you know, people who, women who uh, perhaps cursed or, or scolded or, or were a bit interfering. So I think women who who were perhaps a bit verbally, uh, we might see them today as verbally confident and verbally articulate, but that, that was sort of coded as quite a, a negative and threatening uh, way of behaving then. People who, women who perhaps interfered too much in their, in their neighbours' houses, in their neighbours' lives, um, and quite often, I think the really sad thing about some of these cases is that it's quite often other women 
accusing these female neighbours of witchcraft. So it's women accusers who, you know, perhaps whose child has fallen sick, who have had a miscarriage, who's, um, you know, dairy making that, you know, they're trying to churn butter and it's not working. And very, very sadly, one way in which they might manage their own kind of anxiety or fear or, or sense of failure about themselves as a, as a wife and a mother, one, one way they might do that was by kind of projecting that onto a onto a, another female neighbour that they imagined as, as having caused that problem or that misfortune. So, so when you dig into sort of the, the, the village level, if you like, the village level tensions and accusations, um, you know, it's quite quite sad I think that you you quite often see some of these accusations coming out of these areas of sort of female interaction female activity childbearing household management food production and so on and and it's women actually fearful and and of other women and accusing them of of being witches I think when, when women get taken to court obviously that looks much more like you know the patriarchal legal system prosecuting them but but quite often the initial accusation is 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 voiced by another woman in the community. It's fascinating how we're coming back to this sort of conspiracy mindset. I interviewed a journalist who's researching conspiracy theories in the United States. He wrote a famous book about the QAnon mm-hmm. conspiracy theory. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's really crazy. Uh, but he said something similar about people who believe in it. He said, he said that it's usually people who experience some sort of a trauma or a tragedy in their family. And that's the only way that they can sort of process it is to find some sort of cabal of hidden forces that are to blame for it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you know, it's absolutely crucial to think about, you know, what situation were people in? What were their lives like? kind of what what was going on inside their inside their heads uh, i think there are a lot of similarities sadly between you know what so, some of the emotional psychological processes that were going on in the early modern period are are actually very similar to to some of the conspiracy theory um some of the conspiracy theories that that we have that we have today. So although, although, you know, when we look at some of this witchcraft material, you know, we, we're puzzled by it or we laugh at it. But, but I think some of the fundamental processes of, of, of scapegoating people, of projecting feelings um, of, or, or ways of coping with trauma, projecting them onto other people, blaming other people for them. Um, you know, I, th- I think a lot of that is still sadly, you know, very, very relevant today um even though the beliefs might be might be very different so so i think yeah there there are people who i mean if you're an early modern woman and your child has died it's quite difficult you know you 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 could say it's my fault i'm to blame i'm a bad mother you could say god it's god's will and obviously most people tended to explain misfortune in that way they they would they would assume that it was part of god's divine plan and try and you know cope with it through through religion and, and prayer so it's not that everybody was immediately thinking it was witchcraft there are there are that's bad luck um there are other ways of explaining misfortune but but for some people they would process it by by blaming somebody else it was a way of perhaps of relieving their own 
sense of anxiety, sense of guilt. Um, and it also gave them something to do about it. If you're feeling quite powerless. A sense of agency. Yeah. You know, I can accuse someone. I can, you know, perhaps go to a, a white witch about them. I can take some action. So I think it's about it, it's about the emotional and psychological way of managing trauma wow. and loss. This is exactly what Mike Rothschild, that journalist, said, that it gives people a sense of agency that they can do something about mm. it. Fascinating stuff. Yeah. I wanted to, you alluded to this earlier in, I believe, nine, uh, excuse me, 1486, <clears throat> some German dude, some clergyman published a treatise on how to spot and persecute witches. Mm -hmm. The book was called Maleus. Yeah, go ahead. No, I like the idea of him being a German dude. Yeah, Heinrich Kramer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he's actually one of the Dominican inquisitors. Um, he he was from Germany, so you're absolutely right. He gave himself the much more um, highfalutin name of Instatoris, though, because that that was what Instatoris. He did, you know, he, what is that? Well, it's a Latin. It, it, he took on a Latin. Lot, lots of um, early Lofty. modern uh, learned men to give themselves more kind of claims to authority, I think, give themselves Latin surnames. So, But his name was Heinrich Kramer or Kramer. Um, yeah, I mean, the Malleus Maleficarum, it means the hammer of witches in, in English. Um, so in a way, it, it was part of that process I talked about earlier, this 15th century development of this new idea of the witch as a heretic. Uh, Kramer kind of comes at the end of that process. He's a Dominican inquisitor, He's gone into Germany to, to, to try and fight heresy and he thinks, you know, he's finding witches. Um, the difference in his case is he writes a text about it and it's the first text about witchcraft to, to go into print. So I think that's where we see the importance of the print technology. So there had been earlier kind of manuscript texts written by, by inquisitors, but his is the first one that actually, actually goes into print. Um, and I mean, it's one of many demonologies, the early modern period, because this is demonology. seen as, yeah, it's called a demonology. It's a genre of writing. It's a genre of writing about demons and witches and the devil. And, and it was considered nonfiction. Nonfiction. Yeah. Okay. S some of the most learned minds of the early modern period write demonologies. So the French political theorist Jean Baudin writes a demonology. The King of England and Scotland, James the uh, First and Six, writes a demonology because it's such a contemporary topic. You know, it's new. It's it's important. It's exciting. It's you know, people debate it in print. So so there are lots of these demonologies. So, so I think sometimes the Malleus kind of rather on it kind of gets a bit overemphasized because it's one of 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 many um and the other important thing is although the vast majority really until about the 17th century are very much in favor of witch persecution there are even in the 16th century a couple of sort of brave souls who go into print saying what a daft idea i mean they put it you know more learnedly than that but but so the the weight of opinion until probably about the late 17th century is very much in favor of witch hunting. But, but even in the 16th and early 17th century, you occasionally get um, demonologists who are willing to say, this is a really bad idea. And we sh so, so again, I think we just, 
you know, the, the, the opinion is a little bit more divided perhaps than, than people think. But, but the Malleus is a really interesting text. The reason Kramer wrote it, I think, is he, because he, was, he had failed. He tried to start a witch hunt in, um, in, in his activities as an inquisitor. So he, he, goes, he goes to, he's sent by the Pope from Italy to Germany. He's, he's trying to whip up anxiety about witches. He's trying to get people prosecuted. He's trying to get women executed. And, and the local authorities just say no. They say, what a weird idea. You know, who is this? And, and also they don't like the idea that this outsider is telling them what they should be doing, what what how they should be, um, you know, pursuing heretics. So Kramer is essentially a failed witch hunter. He fails. He is not supported by local authorities. He, he is not. His ideas about witches having sex with demons. P- people, people. I think honestly, they think he, he's almost kind of mad and almost sort of mentally unstable. Um, and and they find you know he's interested. He he asks women you know who they've had sex with and things like that. Local people find this really really problematic. So he's a failed witch hunter, but it's on the back of that failure that he writes the Malleus. So he kind of all his resentment and all his anger and all his misogyny is kind of poured out into that into that book. Um, and there, I think there are a couple of really interesting things about it. He doesn't say anything that new about witches, really, apart from he he really emphasizes that they're more sounds like, like a, a angry incel with a pen. Yeah. Basically, yeah, very much. Yeah, he's Dominican. He's not, you know, he doesn't marry. He doesn't have. So he um, he really emphasizes that witches are women and that they make sexual pacts. So that 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 becomes much more foregrounded in his writing. And the other really important thing he does is he says witchcraft is a really serious crime. So secular courts uh, really need to take up the fight against it so in a way one of his most sort of important influences i think over time is is partly the the strengthening the gendering of the persecution but also saying secular courts need to need to take take the fight up and also that they should treat witchcraft as as an exceptional crime in other words it's so terrible that they you know that they they should do whatever they can to fight fight witches. So although he is an inquisitor, he because he's sort of failed in his inquisitorial work as he sees it, and and one of the main one of his main opponents was a local bishop. So I think he feels the church isn't doing a good enough job, if you like, and and therefore it's secular courts that should that should take take up the um, take up the work. So it's a very important demonology, um, but there are others. You know, there are later uh, demonologies which sort of replace it almost as, as not that they're any more or less misogynistic or, or, or whatever. It's just that because this is a very current, important topic, people carry on writing about it, debating about it, adding to it, um, developing ideas. So, so, so it's kind of a really important starting point for those uh, for those demonological debates that carry on. We think of the Renaissance as, as this great awakening from this dark, long slumber of the medieval period. Um, you know, the scientific inquiry is coming to the forefront. And uh, what impact did the Renaissance have on witch hunts? Um, 
I think it has an impact. I think it has an impact insofar as it really um, it reawakens interest in in magic, in natural magic, in platonic magic. But that's a very very kind of male elite. We're talking about a really kind of you know there's the only men who can read you know Greek, Latin, Hebrew. We're talking about a very kind of elite group of men. So th- there was always the possibility for for you know, men to practice that kind of level of elite magic. It was risk. It could be risky, but it could also, you know, gain them uh, positions of power. And if you think about, um, you know, John D, the um, he, he was the sort of the court astrologer, stroke magician in in the of Queen Elizabeth, right? Yeah, in the court of Elizabeth I. So, so I think I think the Renaissance really, in the same way that it kind of, you know reignited religious interest in ancient texts it kind of reignites this this sort of real interest in um old hermetic and 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 natural and sort of platonic magical texts um i think insofar as it has any impact on on witch persecution i think i think the problem there is that because this because the Reformation ha- begins to happen in the early 16th century. So I think you have kind of got a Renaissance moment, if you like, where things could have perhaps gone differently. You know, things might have gone differently had it not been for the Little Ice Age um, and the Reformation. I mean, I think the Reformation, what, what the Reformation does, sadly, from the from the sort of 1520s onwards is it causes huge religious division, religious tension, religious war, and religious persecution. So because you've got massive religious division in Europe, um, that really feeds the the sorts of anxieties and concerns about heresy that that sort of encourage people to uh to prosecute to prosecute witches. And, you know, people at that time that they could they could imagine so many different sorts of magical practitioners. So they could imagine, you know, an old woman in league with the devil who needed prosecuting, and an elite necromancer who was working at the local court. So I think again they've got a very they've got a very kind of rich um, sort of number of of potential magical practitioners. They'd, they'd also have a a white witch in the next village who they'd go to for help. So. They could imagine, I mean, early modern people are very, very kind of capable of imagining all sorts of different magical practitioners. And and you wouldn't necessarily go to law or try and accuse all of them. Um, So I think I think the Renaissance, you know, I think it's a moment where things could have gone differently. But I think because of those other things that happen and I think particularly you know, the Reformation, the religious division, the, the anxiety that that um, causes. And, and sadly, the, you know, I think I think religious zeal, people convinced of their own godliness, um, determined to discipline or get rid of people who don't, you know, subscribe to their level of, of godly zeal. I think that's a really dangerous thing as well. Uh, and when you get that kind of combined with, a little ice age, a legal system that allows for prosecution. Um, you know, I think that's and a, and a patriarchal system, which obviously puts women in in much more at much more risk of prosecution. I think that's a really toxic sort of mixture. That, but 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 as I say, it 
it's not happening to the same extent absolutely everywhere, which I know isn't much comfort, but you know, it's probably probably just worth mentioning at least. We have to wrap up, but I just wanted to ask you this at the end. Why did the public opinion finally turn against witch persecution? Um, it turns against witch persecution largely because the educated elites stopped taking it seriously. So actually, belief in magic and belief in witchcraft. So kind of top down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've, we've got this uh, case from... Essex in um, in in eighteen sixty three. There's a village in Essex. Like One hundred and fifty years ago. Yeah, a, a man was swum allegedly because people thought he had he had harmed someone through magic in eighteen sixty three in in Sybil Headingham in Essex. It's as far as I know the last known witch swimming that happened in in England. So witch swimming. Yeah, yeah. So so the idea in. It, the idea, well, not just in England, in parts of Europe as well, was the idea that if you if you tied somebody up and put them into water, a pond, uh, if they float, yeah, yeah, if they sink, they're innocent, but might drown. If they float, they are um, they are guilty. But very often, fantastic, yeah, yeah. very often. People actually put sort of a rope around them. So it was, again, we're not talking objective tests here. You know, you could kind of manage it by what you did with the rope. Uh, so anyway, 1863. So popular belief continues a great deal longer than we might think for, for quite a long time. After trials end, people still believe in magic and they still believe in witchcraft. Um what we get from the really late 17th, but primarily the 18th century, the educated elites who in the 15th century had kind of bought into this idea, by the late 17th, but really the 18th century, they begin to change their minds. They begin to become less willing to believe that supernatural intervention of the devil of witches. And, and that is to do, I think, I think some of the ideas Zaza, that you mentioned earlier in relation to the Renaissance, they're really more a feature of the kind of 18th century enlightenment, the idea that the universe works on more rational principles. Um, right, right. And I think there's also a kind of a degree of sort of snobbery about it. The educated men start thinking, well, you know, witchcraft, that's what peasants believe that's what children old wives tales it kind of becomes in the minds of the elites i think the 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 educated particularly the secular elites they begin to find witchcraft belief a lot more problematic so in in the 18th century you begin to see the laws that had allowed the persecutions you begin to see them being repealed or being changed um so in England, in Britain, for example, in the in the 1730s, the old laws against witchcraft are repealed. But there's a new law which says anybody who claims to practice magic or witchcraft can be prosecuted as a fraud. So you can kind of really, really see in a really kind of clear example that that shift of emphasis. So witchcraft isn't real. It's 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 an illusion and it's a fraud. But it, in many ways, they're kind of going back to the earlier medieval ideas so so, but it's becoming enshrined at law so technically after that you could prosecute magical practitioners for fraud if you wanted to but that's a really kind of clear marker of this change instead of being accused of having sex with the devil you're more relegated to being more of a scammer 
in yeah. a swindler. Yeah, getting getting things under false pretenses. So um, yeah, so but but it's a really interesting recategorization of of magical practice, um, and and that that's a really kind of top down top down initiative. But as I say, ordinary people carry on. You know, beliefs aren't going to change at that level for for longer, and it's a slower a slower process. Are there still uh, beliefs in witches somewhere in the world at the moment? Oh yeah, yeah. No, there it's are? a well. I mean, it depends what you mean by witch. I think you know one problem with English is it's not got a very big vocabulary. So for for witch, and it's we assume it's female, but as I say, in German and you know in other languages, you'd have more gender differentiation. So, um, I mean, it you know in England today, in Europe today, in America today, there are lots of people particularly women uh, neo-pagans who self-identify as witches um and in in sadly in many parts of the world um so for example papua new guinea parts of india um parts of sub-saharan africa um many of these beliefs but also sadly many many of these sort of acts of violence and persecution against alleged witches that they're still going on so what i've been talking about today is very much kind of a kind of western european european story so um i mean i've just actually been at a conference where one of the papers was about um uh the witchcraft in ghana um and, and the speaker was talking about contemporary contemporary yeah and what they've what they've done in some parts of ghana is is set up kind of witch villages so so people accused women and it's almost entirely women um accused of witchcraft that they can actually seek refuge there or or they're kind of exiled there so to avoid some of the extreme kind of violence that that they then go and live in these sort of almost like kind of witch camps if you like so 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 no it was a very very sort of salutary reminder really that just because we sort of think of it as being a past phenomenon that you know it's not to say that it isn't going on in in other parts of the world today i mean there are there are sort of different contextualizing reasons for it but but certainly un- unfortunately there is still a lot of violence um against suspected witches and, and and belief in their potentially magical powers hmm. professor rollins thank you so much for taking the time i really enjoyed this conversation Me too. i hope at the end uh, i mean i hope you don't mind that at the end i ask you something a little bit more silly okay despite studying this quite tragic yeah often uh, sad part of history can you still enjoy harry potter or lord of the rings i can i okay yeah i nice. like i'm really interested apart from anything else in how how these long-standing beliefs have have are still very much part of our culture. They're in a very different part of our culture. I mean, they're interestingly, particularly in in Western Europe and the UK. You know, they're very much in children's literature nowadays. But it, it's really interesting to see the historical literary journey by which that 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 sort of change has has happened. Um, so yeah, but I I absolutely love reading anyway, and I love reading. I you know. It was a brilliant thing to read to your kids as well when they were little. So, um, yeah, I do still enjoy it. But I, it's funny, I, I sometimes when I'm watching the films, particularly, I look at the Quidditch scenes and I think, you know, the, the first Witch on a Broomstick that I know of was from a mid-15th century manuscript. 
And I kind of think you can kind of see the way that image of the f- magical flying has come all the way from, you know, the Middle Ages in, into into Quidditch. So that's quite interesting from a historical point of view to, to look at that. And it's quite a great way as well, if you're teaching this or talking to school children about it, it can be a really nice kind of way in to some of these ideas because they're going to immediately have a have a kind of a connection to it from from the literature right and from villains to absolute heroes now yeah well you say that but i mean harry potter is really about the battle isn't it between between good and bad magic you know you've got your good wizards You're right. um fighting the, the so, so in a way i mean it what it doesn't have is that kind of overlay of of heresy there's no devil there's no kind of christian framework but it's fundamentally about using magical powers for good or using them for for evil so i I suppose in that in that sense it's still got that idea of the two possibilities of magic professor olens thank you so much okay do you have any social media where can people follow your work um i'm not very technologically good on social media we we have a um we have a um a twitter account oh, sorry an x account on in our school of philosophical historical and interdisciplinary studies so i tend to post sort of news about conferences and things through through our school uh our school media network so so university of essex yes, twitter university account? of essex yeah okay we'll include that Brilliant. below the youtube video again thank you so much it was a pleasure Great. Thanks, Aza. Glad it worked out. Hey, yeah. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider subscribing and following Smart Cookies on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And if you really liked what you heard, feel free to go on and become my benefactor on Patreon. So I'll be able to keep having these awesome conversations with really, really smart folks. Which brings me to my existing patrons, in effect, producers of this podcast, a set of absolute legends without whom smart cookies would not exist in the first place. My immense gratitude goes to Micha Medved, Medinho, Gordon, Lorenzo, Mila, Veronica, Thea, Jurechuk, Goran, and Carmen. Your support means everything, so thank you.